This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today you'll hear a recent conversation between contributor Tom Wilmer and Roseanne Cash. My son, when he's about 10 years old, he suddenly said at the dinner table, I'm not having a normal childhood. (laughs) And my husband said, son, compared to mom... (laughs) Also, you'll get an update on City Farm Slow. We are adding a garden for all. It's the name of the project, and it is a fully ADA-accessible garden space that we haven't had on the farm before. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, November 14th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with Agenda Breakdown. Welcome to Agenda Breakdown, a podcast that explores how cities and counties make decisions and how you can have a say. I'm Kim Bishop, and today we're going to talk about how the city of San Luis Obispo is planning to tackle climate change. In 2020, San Luis Obispo adopted an ambitious climate action goal to become carbon neutral by 2035. Since then, the city has made progress in a lot of areas, including green electricity, active transportation, organic waste reduction, and more that we'll hear about soon. Next up is creating a climate action work plan for the next several years. City leaders are asking the public to weigh in on that plan before November 16th, so now is the time for all of us to get up to speed on the climate action options. Here to help us with that is Chris Reed, the Sustainability Manager for the City of SLO. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with the basics. What is a climate action plan? A climate action plan at the highest level is simply a plan that sets a greenhouse gas emissions reduction target and then commits to actions to achieving that target. Uh, These plans can exist for all types of organizations. So small nonprofits or community-based organizations can have climate action plans all the way up to the largest companies and national governments and state governments. Climate action plans have been things that local governments have been doing since the mid-1990s, and the city of San Luis Obispo has had a climate action plan since 2012. The 2020 Climate Action Plan was divided into six different pillars, and I'd love it if you could walk us through them and let us know what progress has been made since that was initiated. So the first one, Pillar 1, Lead by Example. What does that mean and what has happened? As we were working on the 2020 Climate Action Plan, we heard from our community, from key stakeholders, and from our council repeatedly that the city as a highly visible organization should really be leading by example. So if we have a 2035 greenhouse gas emissions carbon neutrality goal as a community, we want to do that even faster. And we want to learn lessons in highly visible and public ways and to share those lessons out with our community. So this sector, this pillar is focused on reducing our operational emissions. So our fleet vehicles, our buses, our buildings and facilities, having carbon neutrality in those operations by the year 2030. So five years faster than the community target. And we've made some tremendous strides. So we just purchased a number of electric fleet vehicles. We're working right now on our electric fleet charging infrastructure. We're understanding the initial building electrification or decarbonization projects at our cities and facilities. We have our electric buses on order, and I could keep going down the list. When you say fleet vehicles, does that mean like maintenance trucks and things like that? 
Right now, we're primarily focused on what's called light-duty fleet vehicles. These are passenger cars, small trucks. But the medium and long-term plan is either electrification or using an alternative clean fuel for those medium and and heavier-duty trucks and, and machinery that we see around town. Are there any plans to have an electric shuttle or some way for people to get around downtown that uh, allows them to not bring their cars or leave their cars farther away? One of the major focus areas of the Climate Action Plan is on mobility and on clean mobility. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But for now, I'll just say that we do have electric buses on order and we'll be working on updating our bus yard to be able to charge those. And so we'll be meeting state mandates uh, well ahead of time to have a fully electric bus fleet. All right. Well, pillar two is clean energy systems. What does that mean? A low carbon electricity system, that is an electricity system that can operate with very low greenhouse gas emissions while being dependable, affordable, and accessible is really the foundation of a low carbon economy. Once we have that, we can plug all of our fossil fuel equipment and appliances into it and really start to rapidly reduce our emissions. Progress we've made here includes joining Central Coast Community Energy, which is uh, what's called a community choice aggregator energy provider. But basically, we've partnered with a number of other local governments across the Central Coast to purchase electricity on our community's behalf. And that organization has a goal of, by 2030, directly investing in enough electricity to provide 100% renewable and clean energy for our entire community. So year over year, the electricity grid will just keep getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, meaning everything that's plugged into that will have a lower and lower emissions profile. Okay, so pillar three, green buildings. Right, so now that we have a clean electricity grid and a grid that's getting cleaner and cleaner all the time, we're able to transition the fossil fuel appliances and systems in our buildings to that clean electricity system. And fortunately, there's just been rapid advances in electrical appliances. So there's heat pump hot water heaters and heat pump uh, air conditioners and heating systems, and they're just vastly more efficient than any other appliance available. So we can cost-effectively begin to transition away from those fossil fuel appliances into all-electric appliances and systems. And this actually pairs really well with this historic level of funding that's coming from the state of California and the federal government via our state budget, via the recent Inflation Reduction Act and related Infrastructure Bill and CHIPS Act. There's all these things lining up that are going to bring a tremendous amount of resources into our community to help transition from fossil fuel appliances in our buildings to clean electric appliances. Does that apply to residential or commercial buildings or both? It has a wide applicability depending on the program. So the Inflation Reduction Act has both tax credits for improvements to residential homes and commercial buildings and, for the first time, uh, local government buildings. And also we'll be distributing money to the state of California for rebates starting in 23 for uh, similar types of upgrades. So there are steps that consumers can take in order to electrify their homes or you know, reduce the carbon output before they're required to? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think of green buildings, we separate those into new buildings. So buildings that are being constructed and buildings that already exist in our community. For new buildings, just this summer, council adopted a new policy requiring that buildings be all electric starting in 2023. We know that new buildings are typically lower cost and easier to construct, and they have operational cost parity and really low greenhouse gas emissions. So that's one recent piece of work that we've done there. For existing buildings, we've been working really hard to understand the specific 
challenges and opportunities that exist in our own community. So we've been working with a local affordable housing provider to bring statewide resources to do a pilot project to bring air conditioning and to bring all electric water heating and to bring some uh, comfort improvements into that space so we can understand what are costs like here, what's the contractor environment like here, et cetera. And so that's going to really help us understand and inform the programming that we create in the 23 to 27 work program around how to support single family homeowners or perhaps renters or multifamily building owners as they look to take advantage of these federal and state resources and improve their buildings. Yeah, one of the big complaints that I heard, at least in the early days, was what about my gas stove? How am I going to possibly cook without my gas stove? Do you get the sense that people are being more receptive? There's a number of ways that people can participate in this transition. For folks that want to take maximum advantage of state and federal resources and get a new water heater or an HVAC system, there's that opportunity. For folks that want to transition to a induction cooktop, there'll be that opportunity too. And we know that both uncombusted and combusted natural gas in poorly ventilated areas are real health concerns. And so folks may make improvements for those reasons. But everyone's journey in this transition will be different. Some folks may want to keep their natural gas stove forever and will just look to change out their water heater. And and based on our buildings and our own lives, that'll be really different. Well, that leads to my favorite of the pillars, pillar four, the connected community, which is active transportation. As someone who's worked as an urban planner and urban designer in the past, um, none of these children are my favorite children, but connected community is kind of my favorite child. This is (laughs) such a, a... an exciting space to work in because it really brings in all the things our community cares about, active transportation, transit, parking, housing, land use into one space. Connected community looks at how we can move around our community, how we can have mobility that has really low greenhouse gas emissions, but is also accessible and affordable and connects parts of our community together. This takes what some folks might think are different topics like transit and active transportation and housing and looks at them as a holistic a holistic thing that if we can live by where we work, then we maybe don't need a second car or a car at all. And if that space is really well supported by bicycle infrastructure and pedestrian infrastructure and transit uh, systems, then even more so perhaps we only need one car, no cars at all. At the same time, connected communities also understands that many people will want to keep two cars or one car and will need to make regional trips. And so the other piece of this is also providing either access or opportunities for infrastructure, requirements for infrastructure, or building our own infrastructure for electric vehicle charging so that if someone wants to buy an electric vehicle but maybe doesn't have access to charging or if they need to charge while they're at work or downtown, they'll be able to. Okay, that brings us to Pillar 5, which is an interesting one, circular economy, which I believe is about organic waste reduction. The concept of circular economy is a really big one. The idea is that in a straight-line economy or linear economy, you take resources, you use them, and you throw them away. A circular economy says that we can take those resources, use them, reuse them, and start to create a loop of reuse. That can be applied to lots of different topics in our climate action plan that's primarily focused on organic waste. So the food scraps that we throw in the green bin, the yard waste we throw in the green bin, because of the facilities we have in our county and because we're complying with uh, state law around organics reduction, we can actually take that waste, put it in that facility, and out comes really high-quality compost 
and clean electricity that gets fed back into the grid. So we start to see what used to be a straight line where that garbage would go into the landfill and rot start to become a circle where it feeds back into the economy and well-being of our community. Is that the anaerobic digester? It's the anaerobic digester, yeah. I love that. One of my students recently told me that I can now throw my pizza boxes into the green bin, and that's just game-changing for all of us. <laughs> the anaerobic digester is one of the, the best facility tours you can do uh, in the county. Uh, I mean, the recycling facility is also pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign up for both. Okay, we should have great. just a nerd tours or slow. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to join. <laughs> Excellent. You're listening to Agenda Breakdown. I'm Kim Bishop, and I'm here today with Chris Reed, the Sustainability Manager for the City of San Luis Obispo. So uh, last but not least, natural solutions. Um, carbon sequestration. This is a little, you know, speaking of nerdery, this is, uh, this is a little more in the weeds. Yeah, so we're really lucky to inherit from community and council and staff in the past and incredible work of current community, council, and staff, this robust open space system. Right, We have access to trails. We have unique species all around us. We have all this land and conservation that's preventing sprawl and helping us have a compact urban form. It's providing an amazing space for us to go benefit from being outside. But what it's also doing is holding carbon, greenhouse gas emissions, in the soil. What it's also doing is holding carbon and greenhouse gas emissions in the biomass of trees. So there's a couple of things here. One is around just conserving that space and retaining it as it currently sits. And that retains the carbon that's stored there and and keeps it there. But we also know that as the climate changes around us, we're going to need to manage some of those open spaces slightly differently to ensure their health. And one of the neat things is, is we can manage that in such a way that not only is it more resilient to a changing climate, but it sucks more carbon down into the soil. Those native grasses will take that carbon, put it in the ground, and it can stay there into the future. And we're actually just doing some initial pilots here to understand, working with Cal Poly soil science, to understand what is the carbon-carrying capacity of some of the soils in our open spaces, what could the potential be, how could the management practices be put in place to make sure those open spaces are healthy uh, and, and really accessible and continue to be places we love. Okay, so one other topic that's not one of the official pillars uh, that came up in the Climate Action Plan is environmental justice. Can you talk about what that means and how SLO has made some progress in that area since 2020? Diversity, equity, inclusion is a major city goal uh, in this financial plan. And so we've been working really closely with our DE&I manager, diversity, equity, inclusion manager, to understand how we can integrate those concepts into our sustainability work. But even before that, we've seen equity and environmental justice as a really core lens by which we see this work. And it's one of the ways that we think and we've learned from other cities throughout North America that we can be successful. And when we're able to have an equity lens on all the work we do, we're able to make sure the benefits are distributed across our community equitably. That's really like a pathway to success. So environmental justice means a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, It's actually enshrined in California government code. Um, So like a working definition is that environmental justice is the fair treatment of people of all races, cultures, and incomes with respect to the development, adoption, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And that's one way to think about it. I think we'd extend that to also programs, um, outreach, all the sorts of work we do. And I'll, I'll say every time we do a task, like this is just standard practice. We do a project plan, right? So we have in our cap, there's a task there. We're ready to implement it. We'll do a project plan saying who's going to do the work, what's our budget, what's our time frame. 
one of the things we've added in is the specific equity lens in our work program, asking how are we going to hold our commitment to representational equity to make sure that a representational cross-section of our community is involved from the ground floor in how this program is designed and implemented. Um, We also ask how are we going to maintain our commitment to what's called distributional equity or how are the benefits and costs equitably spread across the community. Uh, And then finally, we ask this sort of like structural equity question. How can we make sure those lessons learned in this little project gets transferred out to all the other projects and tasks that we're working on? There's a couple of examples here, and I think the one that I'm most excited about and that's most relevant to some of the conversations we've already had here is around how we're thinking about access to funds and resources for building retrofits. So we know that energy poverty is a major issue. We know that in these uh, economic times for low and moderate income households, an energy bill is just one more thing on top of everything else. And we've seen electricity rates go up. We've seen natural gas rates go up. So there's lots of ways that a building retrofit program could look. And the way that we're narrowing in on is finding ways to bring those federal resources that can pay for up to 100% of projects for folks that are in the lowest income brackets, state resources that can pay for up to 100% of projects. This includes solar. It includes battery storage. It includes upgrading electrical panels for safety. It includes insulation for comfort. And really narrowly focusing in on deploying and delivering those resources to folks in our community that want to take advantage of it so that we don't leave any of that money on the table. We bring as much into our community as possible, and it really benefits the people that need it the most first. These are all great goals. How does a city decide to prioritize funds for something like this? There's a notion that Sometimes we'll hear from a community member a question along the lines of, can we afford to do this? Or something along the lines of, uh, this is really nice if you have the money to do it. Or, or perhaps a question about, um, you know, I'm a low-income community member. This is really just going to burden me. We've intentionally developed these tasks not just to be neutral to that question, but to actively address and resolve questions of, diversity, equity, inclusion, of economic development, of affordability and accessibility. And a couple of examples here. So first, we joined Central Coast Community Energy in 2020 as a way to bring clean electricity to our community on a really accelerated path. But we also did it because the rates are lower than they would have been for folks that had stayed with the the previous utility, while also providing access to programs that can heavily subsidize the used electric vehicle, or used e-bike, which can have further cost reductions in household costs for mobility and cost of living. I feel like any of the seven items we just touched on could be its own episode. (laughs) If people want to take a deeper dive into any of them, where do you recommend that they go? Slowcity.org slash climate action plan. That has our current 2020 climate action plan. It also has the next set of work tasks that we're proposing to implement that plan, um, and as well as a survey that you all can take to give feedback on it. What does that entail, and what exactly are you asking the public to weigh in on? We're really interested in making sure that the tasks that we implement to achieve our greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals don't just have co-benefits as a nice-to-have, but intentionally drive progress in our housing goals, in our diversity, equity, inclusion goals, in our economic development goals. We've had really deep conversations with broad cross-section of our community to 
to ask that question and understand. And we think the tasks in the plan reflect that, but we'd really love to hear from people. What are some things we can do in there to be really successful, to drive benefit into their daily lives? Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you. Now it's time for today's action item. The city has posted a public review draft of the Climate Action Plan work program, along with a public survey where you can submit your thoughts by November 16th. You can find that survey and others at slowcity.org slash opencityhall. And while you're there, take a look at the other two opportunities to give direct feedback to your local government. Surveys are also open for the city's first strategic plan to prevent and address homelessness. The deadline for that one is November 19th. And the fire department's upcoming strategic plan, deadline November 14th. Today's episode was produced by Samantha Reardon with music by Wes Bishop. If you like the show, you can go to agendabreakdown.com to listen to past episodes and follow us on social media. You can also find us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Bishop. Thanks for listening to Agenda Breakdown. Up next on Issues and Ideas, KCBX contributor Tom Wilmer speaks with Roseanne Cash. I'm sorry for the lonely times I wasn't even there With my thimble full of whiskey and my pocket While covering the Bristol Rhythm and Roots Music Festival last month in Bristol, Virginia, I had the absolute pleasure to visit with musician and songwriter Roseanne Cash. To be transparent, I must confess that in addition to being an ardent fan of Roseanne's music, I also adore her as a most kind, gracious, and compassionate human being. When I first interviewed her years ago at the Johnny Cash Music Festival at the University of Arkansas in Jonesboro, I came away touched by her thoughtfulness, kindness, and skill at being totally focused and in the moment. I'm correspondent Tom Wilmer. Come along and join the conversation as Roseanne waxes poetically about her life journey and passion for making the world a better place, along with the most humble awareness of the preciousness of life. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Chatter so I can get a level here. That background noise isn't going to bother you? It's okay. We're well, on I mean, location. Yeah, you're on location. <laughs> Actually, in radio, I like having that sense of being wherever you are. Wherever you are, yeah. red, instead of a box. Yeah, right? they try and bring you in the office. I go, no, let's go outside. So here we are, Roseanne Cash. How cool. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> no, I already know. <laughs> so here we are in Bristol, the birthplace of American Roots music, right? The Bristol session. It's pretty powerful to be here. And I, uh, like I just said to someone, I feel embarrassed that I haven't really spent any time here before, only Mm -hmm. passed through, because it figures so prominently, not just in American cultural history, but in my own ancestry. Yeah, uh, my family. 1927 Bristol sessions. Well, not only that, Tom, but my. The Cash family settled in Westmoreland County, Virginia in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And then 
were in part of the branch, including my dad, moved to Tennessee. My stepmother, June, and her family, obviously you know that history right here in Bristol and Virginia, and then on to Tennessee. So Virginia and Tennessee are like part of my bloodstream. It feels like home to be down here. Yeah. When you were a kid, where did you live? I was born in Memphis. Okay. Grew up in Southern California, moved back to Nashville, and then I've lived in New York City for 30 years. I married a native native New Yorker. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So when you were a teenager, when did that heartstring of music and writing music hit you? Or was it always there? Always. Mm -hmm. I think from infancy, you know, the rhythms just, um, rhythms were part of my cellular makeup Mm -hmm. and then I started writing poetry in my when I was eight nine years old won a poetry contest when I was nine always loved language and putting words together and then eventually that became songwriting Mm -hmm. so that's how I started is songwriting interesting so when you are writing are you ultimately writing for yourself therapeutically in a way that's an interesting question I think that an outcome of songwriting can often be therapeutic, Mm -hmm. but I think if you approach real disciplined songwriting as a craft and as an art Mm -hmm. to do it as therapy, I I don't know if if that is the most noble goal for it. Mm -hmm. I think songwriting is a pure art, and of course you start with your own life because you, you know, or- It's what you know. It's what you know, or your observations, it's what you know. And oftentimes it can be very cathartic and very therapeutic, but I, I resist it being as therapy. Sure. Yeah. It might be a bonus. It might be a bonus. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. And when did you pick up the guitar, and was it to accent your storytelling? Well, you would think that because of my dad, I would have picked up the guitar when I was, you know, preteen. Right. I didn't. Oh, I started playing. I started playing piano. So who taught me guitar is the Carter women. Oh, wow. I was on the road with my dad and the Carter family at 18 years old, and I spent a lot of time in the dressing room with the Carter women, and Helen and Anita and June and Maybell just spent time with me, and the first things I learned on guitar were those Carter family songs. I owe those women a tremendous debt. That's so cool. I'm gonna play one of them tonight, in fact. I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> so your dad. Yeah. You know, it's my dad. You know, he's a cast of Big Shadow. And so it can be intimidating sometimes. You know, yeah. how do you get out from under that shadow? I don't know that I ever entirely will or have gotten out from mm. that. But the key is not to struggle against it. The key is to know who you are mm-hmm. and let the shadow be nourishing an inspiration an inspiration and mm-hmm. my legacy you know not to push it away i'm too old to push away a legacy as important as that yeah and uh i i've come to honor my parents and um they were certainly not perfect but to be able to appreciate what they gave me and be grateful for that i mean that's grace isn't it mm-hmm Growing up in the midst of it, were you too close to realize the fame and fortune? Because oh. it was like 
this is my family. Oh, sure. <laughs> it took me a long time to realize that we were abnormal. <laughs> and the greatest thing, my son, when he was about, because, you know, I live a public life, too, and my husband, and we're, we are public figures as well, and then the, my family, and my son, when he's about nine t- or ten years old, he suddenly said at the dinner table, he said, I'm not having a normal childhood. <laughs> and my husband said, son, compared to mom. <laughs> That's funny. So you live in New York. Yeah. When you walk around, you go to the store. Are you do anonymous? You have, do you have some anonymity? Absolutely. I mean, people uh, in New York they're very cool. If they recognize you, they just kind of nod or <laughs> say, you know, I saw you on Letterman last night or something like that. And as a writer who wants to be anonymous in order to observe and allow things to inspire me like that. Mm-hmm. It's, that's one of the reasons I love living in New York so much. Also, the constant stimulation. I'm just that kind of person. I'm kind of an intense person, and I like stimulation. Counterpoint accent. There you go. Yeah. So today, what is closest to your heart? What are you trying to communicate, to share? Is there a mission? A mission. That might be too grand a notion, but there is definitely an urgency in my mind and my heart and my spirit these days and I think it has to do with uh, mortality and knowing that time is the most precious thing Mm -hmm. and there are still things I want to do with my life I know why I'm on the planet and I want to I want to write more I want to share more I want to become better at what I do I mean I want to leave a ripple of goodness in the world Mm -hmm. if that's possible I mean every bit counts doesn't it so a while back you had a brain tumor it was no it was a brain condition it was a abnormality in my brain i love that was it the new york times article oh i wrote an article so that said well actually it is brain surgery (laughs) i love that but nonetheless that moment it must have been a reality a mortality wake up call oh yeah so a game shifter for you totally was and while I was recovering from the surgery, which was quite brutal, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. What do I want to do with the time I have left on exactly. Earth? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, I call it the humbleness of soul. You know, yeah. ultimately we wake up dead one day. That's right. And so I read something very interesting just yesterday. They said, do you, oh, it was the, the poet John Donne from the 16th or 17th century. He and you know Newgate prison in England and Tyburn was where they executed it and he said do you stay a, does the prisoner stay asleep from Newgate to Tyburn so we should not stay asleep from birth to death we mm-hmm. should try to be awake in every moment I love it unfortunately I'm getting the a signal pro- yeah the producer <laughs> with they- the little hook <laughs> Thank you, Roseanne. My pleasure. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer. We've been talking with Roseanne Cash in Bristol, Tennessee, and Virginia. A man can work his whole life through and never think to change or fret about the future. My name is Roseanne Cash. I listen to WNYC in New York. In fact, NPR is all I listen to. And... If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So, yes, please support your local NPR station. Feels like a new goodbye.
every day feels like a new goodbye. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. It's time for the nonprofit story with Dr. Consuelo Mukes. I am sitting here right now with Kayla Rutland. She is the executive director of City Farm Slow. Kayla has her bachelor's degree in nutritional science from the University of Connecticut and a minor in sustainable crop production. And welcome to the nonprofit story. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. It's so great to be here with you. Thank you. I think City Farm Slow is one of our wonderful treasures in this area. So tell us about what you do and why you do it. So City Farm Slow is a nonprofit urban farm, and we are working to empower the next generation to live healthier, more prosperous lives through sustainable agriculture and farm-based education. Oh, that's and <laughs> that's a pitch, right? Yeah, but, <laughs> but basically, we've been on around 19 acres of land that's leased from the city of San Luis Obispo. And since 2013, we've been stewarding that land and maintaining it in sustainable ag production. Mm-hmm. And so 15 of those 19 acres are subleased out to independent, organic, small-scale <coughs> farmers. So first and foremost, what our organization is doing is enabling the sustainable crop production by those farmers through affordable land leases, reliable water, access to reliable water, and some supportive services. Mm -hmm. And then the remaining acreage um, is where our nonprofit organization carries out youth education programs that we do in partnership with schools and then also outside of schools. We have a a youth empowerment program that we run in the summers. And we also do our own regenerative farming on that acreage. Wow. So we have a lot to break down here. Let's start with the farmers sure. that you have. Are, um, there, who are these farmers? Let's just go with that. Who are the farmers? Are they local people? Are they small farmers? What? Yes, all of the above. (laughs) They are local. Mm -hmm. Um, They are small-scale farmers. We have six tenant farmers right now, Mm -hmm. and they're all growing organic produce for the local community. So they're selling at farmer's markets to Harvestly, which is an online farmer's Mm -hmm. market, to the school districts, to local restaurants. So all of that good, wholesome produce is staying in our community. And one of our objectives as an organization is to help farmers access land who might not otherwise have access to farming or um, the ability to farm. There's so many barriers that Mm -hmm. farmers face, especially in California and more now than they ever have before. The average age of farmers in California is continuing to increase, and also in San Luis Obispo County. Land access is a challenge. Water access is a challenge. And there's also a lack of training out there. So we're attempting to reduce barriers that farmers experience. I noticed on your website that there's a wait list. Is that right for people that want to be farmers? Yeah, so we typically do have a wait list. We actually have some land that's available now. Mm -hmm. Um, We have 1.2 1.2 acres that's currently vacant. That so sounds good. That's it. This is my first time putting it out there. Great. So <laughs> we haven't ask, advertised yeah. it yet. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So um, we are looking forward to bringing on another farmer. So if someone is interested, what do they do? They can visit our website and then reach out to us. Info at cityfarmslow.org is our email. Okay. That mm-hmm. sounds good. Give us the website now at the top of the program so we can also say it again later. 
Sure. It's cityfarmslow.org. So you have the farmers that you're working with, and they're producing these harvests, and um, and a lot of it stays local. Is that correct? Yeah, Mm -hmm. all of it. Okay, and it's all organic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, What else do you do? I know you have other programs. You're dealing with the food, and we'll be back with that too, but you have a lot of programs that you're you're doing. Uh, You're doing uh, horticultural therapy classes for the development mentally disabled young adults in the area. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're working with kids. Tell us some more about that particular class, though. Sure. That's our therapeutic horticulture program, like you mentioned. And that program is actually going into its ninth year this year. We're really proud of it. And uh, this year, we are tripling the number of students that we're serving. So Mm -hmm. we're really scaling that program. It seems to be Um, Well, it's in high demand, so it's definitely in need. And the purpose of that program is to um, provide life skills exposure for our students with disabilities. And so we're doing things like practicing following instructions Mm -hmm. or um, different exercises that work on um, social skills, social emotional skills, also um, being on the farm improves um, physical activity as well. So students are learning coordination, balance, walking around and getting exercise. Um, We've seen amazing results in that program. So students, as they spend time with us, um, they become more confident. Mm. They learn to express themselves more clearly on the farm. It becomes a really safe space for them. And a lot of our students, we have returning to the farm for four years. So that's, that's really impactful that we actually get to build that relationship with them for so long. That's wonderful. And that is a different program, I think, than others that we have here in this area. Mm-hmm. A really exciting development this year mm-hmm. is that we are adding a Garden for All. It's the name of the project and it is a fully ADA-accessible garden space that we haven't had on the farm before. So a lot of the farm right now is inaccessible to Mm -hmm. individuals or students with disabilities. All of our – everything we grow is grown in the ground. We don't Mm -hmm. have raised beds right now. And some of the terrain on the farm is hard to um, get around if you're using a wheelchair or if you have other mobility limitations. So the Garden for All is going to be a decomposed granite foundation. It has raised beds. It has um, a mobile classroom, sensory gardens. And we actually broke ground on that yesterday. And it's it's, someone's out there Mm -hmm. pouring decomposed granite right now. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited. Amazing. Yeah. That's a wonderful program. How do people get involved with that? Yeah, we really rely on the support of volunteers at City Farm. So interested folks can sign up on our website to be Mm -hmm. volunteers. We also are raising funds for the Garden for All, and you can also do that on our website. Wonderful. So those are ways that the community can come in and assist you by raising funds and letting people know about how to be a volunteer. So let's talk a little bit about volunteers and volunteer days and everything that people can do to help. What are the volunteer days? And tell us what we get to do. Yeah, (laughs) we have volunteer hours every second and fourth Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. And those days are a lot of fun. Families come out. Um, I mean, we have all sorts of people come out. It's a Mm. great range of ages and it's we just have a lot of fun. Usually we're doing 
um, all sorts of tasks within the umbrella of regenerative farming. Mm -hmm. So folks get to learn a lot about um, sustainable agriculture. And you can sign up for that on our website as well. That sounds great. And not only do you work with the plants, it sounds like you get to feed the chickens and the sheep and yeah. all sorts of wonderful things. That's part of it, too. So can anybody come? It doesn't matter. Do you, you have something on the website, though, that you sign up to find out about it? Yeah, there's a sign up for each individual day. We do book all those spaces, typically. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you do some other things, too, where the people can come, uh, which I want to talk about. But... Um, we do want to go into the Youth Empowerment Program, but before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that this is the Nonprofit Story. I'm Dr. Consuelo Mucs, your host, and I'm speaking with Kayla Rutland. She is the Executive Director of City Farm Slow. Your Youth Empowerment Program, those are a little different, too, from some of the others we've talked about, I think. Just mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, our Youth Empowerment Program was piloted in April of 2021. Since then, we've graduated five cohorts of students. Oh. It's been a really popular and successful program that we're really proud of. And students are with us for eight sessions for long, intensive sessions. So it's a, a very robust program experience mm -hmm. for them. And the whole program is focused on career and college readiness mm. skills. That is, um, the program is taught bilingually in English and Spanish. Nice. And it's all taught within a framework of regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. So students are engaged in workshops that cover a lot of soft skill topics, things like setting smart goals, practicing public speaking, they build resumes, they explore a lot of different careers in agriculture. They actually take field trips to Cal Poly to learn about the different agriculture departments over mm -hmm. there. Um, sometimes they have the opportunity to visit the food bank and do a volunteer session there and learn about how the food bank is run. And then 90 minutes of each session is devoted to hands-on technical regenerative farming instruction, and they're paid for their time doing that. Yeah, they great. also learn some budgeting skills so that mm -hmm. when they graduate the program, they um, our students have um, some personal finance skills to take with them with the, nice. the money that they they earn in the program. And then when they graduate, they have the opportunity to apply for a paid farming internship with us in the following summer. So we've had two summers mm -hmm. now of YEP graduates, Youth Empowerment Program That's graduates. amazing. That yeah. is amazing that you bring people right back to the organization in different levels and have them helped out. How does the students get selected to be in the program? There's an application process, mm -hmm. and we prioritize um giving spaces to students who qualify based on being low income or minority status. Okay, wonderful. And you do other things where the general population can come and enjoy the farm also. Let's share some of that in case people want to come and do a tour or take, uh, you know, your open farm days or field trips. Yeah, <laughs> we have uh, private tours available, which you can book on our website. And then we also have a really exciting event coming up. You can learn about that on our website. It's called A Night a la Ferme. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's um, a, an evening of food and wine pairings. We have some really awesome event sponsors. Um, just to name drop a few, we have Novo coming, Slow Provisions, Tolosa. Wow. And this will be October 16th. Um, and should be a lot of fun. So that event will be supporting our programs. That sounds great. October 16th, 
2022. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going to be able to do that. And the uh, location is also available for other private events, I see. Is that yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do some space rentals as well. Mm-hmm. So is that for birthdays or holidays or weddings or All what's it for? All of the above. Yeah, we... Okay. We don't do weddings. That's oh, a that's okay. a bit much for us, but yeah. <laughs> smaller scale events, yeah. Okay, and then private tours. So if somebody mm-hmm. wanted to come with their family and maybe see what it's like out there or get a sense of the farming, are they able to come and, and check that out? Exactly, yeah. Our tours are an hour and a half, and we do some hands-on stuff as well. So it's a great chance to get your hands in the dirt, take home some produce, and learn a lot. Don't you have days where people can come and help to harvest some of the food? Yeah, every Tuesday we have a volunteer harvest day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we we definitely rely on the support of our volunteers, and um, that's something you can sign up for as well. So are you looking for people that can commit to a certain period of time, or can people just come out for that? So the the harvest volunteering definitely... in the past, we've looked for folks that can commit to attending on a regular basis because that's more of a skill-based position. Mm-hmm. Every crop requires a certain technique to harvest, so we um, we like to have trained folks joining us on those mornings. What are some of your larger crops or the more usual crops that are available for harvesting? Right now, we're harvesting a lot of tomatoes, our kind of signature crop is a butterleaf lettuce that we sell as a bagged mix and it's so good. It's called Salanova. That's the the varietal of lettuce and oh my gosh, it's amazing. It takes a long time to harvest and wash though. So so it's a um yeah. It's a lot of work. So the public can't just come out and buy food, right? We have to get it from the site that you mentioned? Yeah, Harvestly is where you can order from us. So that's an online farmer's market. They're a really great company. They're great for farmers and great for customers, too. They'll deliver it anywhere in Slow County for five bucks. Oh, that's great. So Harvestly.com, huh? Dot .co harvestly.co okay great yeah. and what is the website for city farm slow cityfarmslo.org okay and so are you always looking for volunteers are you kind of full or can people say that they want to come and help with the youth um, is there any limit on what they can do to help you out folks are always welcome to sign up for our volunteer list and then they will get our invites to specific volunteer events. Mm -hmm. Something that's new for us this year is we are partnering with Cal Poly in their College Corps program. Mm -hmm. That's where we're taking on actually 28 um, College Corps fellows who will be um, completing service hours with us. Mm -hmm. So that's going to change our volunteer programs a little bit because we will have so many Cal Poly students working with us. So Mm -hmm. we'll have to see what that brings this year in terms of how many community members we can accept at our volunteer events. Mm -hmm. But there's still plenty of work to go around on the farm. That's really amazing because it seems like you're helping so many people in our community to actually be involved with this farming process and all. Uh, The students that are coming on from Cal Poly, are they in specific uh, uh, areas of study or just anybody that's interested? There's such a wide range of majors that I've seen in the program, which is really cool that they're all interested in, mm-hmm. first of all, climate change, and mm-hmm. um, then the different focus areas that have been nestled in that program, which is food insecurity and K-12 through education, and then our 
the way that we're interpreting climate change at City Farm is through regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really neat to see such a diverse group of majors or field of study come out for that. City Farm Slow has just become such a part of uh, integrating the community into everything that's happened, as well as building the idea of sustainable areas of having food and everything in this community. Yeah, we're so grateful that the community is so interested in being a part. Well, we're grateful to have you. And thank you for coming to the Nonprofit Story today. This has been an interview with Kayla Rutland. She is the Executive Director of City Farm Slow. And you can find them at the website one last time. CityFarmSLO.org. Thank you, Kayla. This is the Nonprofit Story. And finally, there's a lot to do in Santa Barbara County's many swim spots, if you know how to swim. KCBX intern Christina McDermott takes a look at water safety. It's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, and a faint breeze blows off the harbor. It shakes the palm trees around Los Banos del Mar Pool in downtown Santa Barbara. Kids are grabbing their swim gear from the pool's edge, kickboards, fins, and snorkels, and securing the gear in mesh bags. Behind them, adults chat, parents picking up swim kids and master swimmers stretching for their evening session. This pool, all seven lanes and 50 meters, gets a lot of use. And why wouldn't it? The Central Coast has a water culture, swimming of course, but also water polo, kayaking, surfing, you name it. There's a lot to do in and on the water, if you know how to swim. I'm Christina McDermott for KCBX. Nancy Schley is on deck a lot. She has nearly 20 years of coaching experience and currently coaches age group swimmers at Santa Barbara Swim Club. I asked Schley what you gain when you learn to swim. Uh, I think teaching somebody to swim is you're actually teaching somebody a lifelong skill that they can use forever, um, no matter what age and a lot of different reasons for it. One would be for safety, you're given Um, you're giving a gift of a lifetime, and that would be safety in the water. And once someone can swim, a whole world opens up. If they become swimmers proficient enough to where they're drown-proofed, they have a plethora of activities they can do with aquatics, especially living here in Santa Barbara. And what about swim teams? Schley says they keep kids healthy and make them stronger, safer swimmers. They're also good for developing life skills. For... uh, making friends, for learning how to be on a team, how to get along with others, how to set goals, short-term goals, long-term goals. And every single thing that I probably just mentioned in that list is something that we all need no matter how old we are. To swim on a team is to learn accountability. For Schley, swimming has taught her about continued hard work. I think one thing that that I got out of swimming myself and I've tried to instill in others would be that in swimming there are no shortcuts. It is what it is. There's not a judge telling you that you have a nine out of nine. It, it's not like that. So what is it like? It's, it's you and the clock, and it's you and your teammates, and it's you against the person next to you, perhaps. It's individual sport, but it's also a team sport. It teaches life skills in that, in that way. It's not just kids who swim or should swim. At the Montecito YMCA, swimmers of all ages enjoy the water. Dwayne Turner has worked as a lifeguard here for a decade. I asked him about the value he finds in his job. 
Well, the fact that I get to see a whole bunch of folks out here, regardless of their abilities, swimming, which means they're getting a lot of exercise because that's what swimming really is about. Research shows that swimming is great for your body. It reduces blood pressure, decreases arterial stiffness, and improves circulation. In other words, it's soft on your joints and keeps you mobile. And you don't even need a pool, technically. Cold water immersion, the kind of thing you get swimming in the ocean around here or in lakes maybe, has been shown to boost metabolic rate and dopamine production. It significantly reduces pain and increases mood. Okay, to be fair, open water swimming is a little bit different than swimming in a controlled environment like the YMCA pool. Every day is different when you get in the ocean. You're never gonna very rarely have the exact same day you know, two days in a row. And so uh, breathing becomes very different because you're dealing with the swell and the chops, you know, and the currents as well. Ingrid Schmitz teaches ocean swimming at Santa Barbara City College. She tells me some of the value she finds swimming in the ocean. I like the communal aspect of communing with nature. You know, being out with marine life, being out, you know, in the water where there's a lot of movement, uh, the swells, the wind, the pelicans diving down, uh, the view. A lot of people don't see the view of Santa Barbara from the water. Her swim courses are open to all ages. Her fall class meets twice weekly, while her summer course runs five days a week, two hours a day. So it's pretty intensive, but we improve very quickly, so quickly that we actually attempt a 5K halfway through the class, and then we attempt a 10K at the end of the class with feeding stations. To keep everyone safe, Schmitz makes sure there are two lifeguards in the water with the group and at least one on the beach. Everyone wears bright swim caps too. Being visible and swimming with a buddy are important. Finally, Schmitz subscribes to the two rule. If you're too tired, too cold, too hungry, too freaked, too anything, get out. Swimming, after all, can be dangerous. Santa Barbara swim coach Sly has rescued multiple people from drowning deaths. Three of them have been out of um, rivers. One of them was at a campground the parents were kind of socializing in one area and didn't realize what was going on. Their kid fell in and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. That's the thing about drowning. If someone isn't in the right place at the right time, it's a tragedy. The U.S. averages 22 non-fatal drownings and 11 drowning deaths per day. And it can happen in an instant. I know that when I was pregnant, if I could say this, when I was pregnant, one thing that I dreamt almost every night were, I don't know why, but I dreamt that my kids were drowning. That's Coach Sly again. This recurring dream motivated her to put her kids in lessons early. I was the one going in and getting them. Gotta go get them, gotta find them, gotta find, you know. But I dreamt that almost every night when I was pregnant, that I, it was all about water, it was all about my kids drowning. And so when I did have the kids, I'll tell you, I got those guys very, very, quickly into the water. According to the CDC, drowning is the number one cause of death for children ages one through four, excluding birth defects. It's the number two cause of unintentional injury death for kids under 15. And again, it's not only children. In 2019, the CDC reported 3,000 
408 drowning deaths for those 15 and older. Data about Central Coast drownings is incomplete or just not available to the public. Also, not everyone drowns in their home county, and it can be hard to track down drowning deaths at private pools. There is data on beach drowning. According to the U.S. Life Saving Association, which compiles all reported statistics for beach lifeguards around the country, Santa Barbara Beach Guards only had to make 37 rescues in 2019. And there hasn't been a drowning on a guarded beach in the past 10 years. Coach Schmitz had mentioned guards when asked about safety. First of all, ideally you'd want to swim at a beach where there's a guard. The problem is, is our guards stop Labor Day weekend and don't come back on until summer. And so you should always swim with a buddy. What else can you do to keep your loved ones safe? Learning to swim is a good first step. In the summer, the city offers swimming lessons at its public pools. Santa Barbara Swim Club coach Sly also mentioned adult swimming programs offered year-round at City College, private lessons in the area, and YMCA programs. Turner, the YMCA guard, told me about some of these programs. You can sign up for private or group lessons online. The Y also does outreach. Well, we started um, an event years ago called Learn to Swim Week. We went to the east side and over at Ortega Pool, we started for one week. We would teach swimming lessons to all the neighborhood folks to come on in, the community folks to come on in. This event was free. Swim lessons can get expensive, ranging from 30 to $70 for a 30 minute private lesson. They can be located far away or take time families don't have, or they're just not part of a family's culture. We started that because it's a, we're here we are in a coastal environment and believe it or not, there's a lot of people in a coastal environment that don't really know how to swim. And so we targeted the east side years ago. Turner says the turnout was in the triple digits. And we had hundreds of kids coming in and out of that pool for a week when we first started. It's really cool. Back at Los Banos, I sat with Coach Sly watching the master swimmers glide across the pool with steady, rhythmic movements. I asked her why she, personally, loves swimming. It motivates me, it gets me up, gets me going, clears my head, cleans me inside out, cleans out the cobwebs, and it's something that I can do for the rest of my life. She left me with this thought. As many years as I have in water and as many competitive miles that I've put in and, and, and on deck coaching, I have such a respect for water that it's, it's a funny feeling where I feel like I've mastered water, but at the same time, I'm scared. So I have major respect for what water can do. Water can save your life, and water can take your life. You can find information about Los Banos Del Mar Pool by visiting the City of Santa Barbara's Parks and Recreation Department webpage. Information on YMCA programs and Santa Barbara City College programs is available on their respective websites. I'm Christina McDermott for KCBX. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.